Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. So everybody can have an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful we can be here this evening to study your word, to reflect upon what it means, and and especially to be reminded of the uh, many blessings that you have provided for us, and uh, uh, the least of which is our salvation and just the very possession of your word and all that has gone into providing it, translating it, and uh, printing it so that we can each have our very own copy of your word and how unique that is in history. Father, we're thankful that uh, we can come together this evening to focus on your word. We just pray that we would be responsive to what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Revelation chapter 22, and we are coming to the end of our study. Just a reminder for the study of Revelation, the book's really divided into three sections, and it comes out of... Revelation 119, uh, where the Lord Jesus Christ had appeared to uh, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in 95 A.D. and orders him to write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. That gives us the threefold breakdown. Chapter 1 describes the things which you have seen. And actually, when you look at chapter 1, the first uh, four verses um, are basically an introduction to the book itself, I mean, to sort of a prologue or preface uh, to the first chapter, actually about the first uh, uh, first seven verses, rather. Uh, verses 1 through 7 give us an introduction or prelude to, to the that introductory section. Then you have the uh, description of John, his current circumstances on the island of Pat- Patmos. That's present tense, the things which you have seen. Then the things which, uh, which are, this describes the present church age. Uh, the churches that are described there, you have the seven letters to those uh, seven churches, which describe the general trends and patterns uh, that will characterize churches throughout the, the present church age. And then the future period uh, described in chapters 4 through 22, the things which will take place after these things. That covers the period of the tribulation, then the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom in chapter 20, and then the uh, eternal state in chapters 21 through 22, 5. What begins in 22.6 is the conclusion to the book. 22.6 to the end of the chapter, 22.21, gives us the conclusion to the book and goes back and picks up the same theme, same ideas that are introduced in the first chapter of Revelation. Just to show you the parallels here, I took out some of these uh, uh, verses and set up on these slides a verse from the first chapter at, on the top and then the verse, uh, verse from chapter 22 at the bottom. And I highlighted the, doesn't show up on, on, um, on the screen. It's a little dark, but I'm, um, tried to highlight a section with a green text, but I've got to go with a lighter green text, I guess, or use some other way to, uh, indicate that. Verse one, one one chapter one one reads the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. 
and he sent and communicated it to by his angel to his bondservant John. Then in Revelation 22.6 we read, and he, that's, as we'll see, that's the interpreting angel there that's giving, uh, giving John the tour of the future. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So you have a parallel between those two verses. Then, um, Verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 ends by saying that he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John. And in Revelation 22:16, near the end, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, he's addressing John, these things for the churches. In Revelation 1, 3, we have the first of seven blessing statements in the book. Revelation 1, 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it for the time is near. And the Greek word there, ingus, indicates something in somewhat close proximity. Uh, Revelation 22, 7 and 10 states, And behold, I am coming quickly. The Greek word is taku. Uh, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of the, this book. Now, those two Greek words that I pointed out there are very important to understand because they're at the heart of a lot of uh, contemporary uh, controversy and debate right now between different ways of understanding prophecy. And what's, uh, what's unfortunate is the way this gets, I think, mishandled and misinterpreted in terms of uh, uh, the preterist position and some other positions, which has doesn't really affect us a whole lot, but every now and then uh, it kind of blindsides somebody and it does become a problem. So I want to address that a little bit more uh, this evening. Revelation 22.10, he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So what exactly does this mean that he's coming quickly and the time is near? Does that indicate that uh, Jesus should have come very close to the time that Revelation was written, or does it indicate something else? In Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Father is speaking there. And remember, we covered the doctrine of perichoresis, which uh, is, the, is a Greek word indicating how uh, the, close, the closeness, the interpenetration of the three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so that what is said of one is attributed to all three. And so in, in uh, Revelation 1.8, the Father is speaking as the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet, and this indicates that he's the beginning and the end. And then Revelation 1.17, Jesus is speaking in his commission to John to write down what he has seen. Uh, Jesus said, I am the first and the last. So these are applied to both the Father and to the Son. Then in Revelation 22.13, it is the Son speaking. It is Jesus speaking, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So that shows us that there's a parallel, the parallels here between the beginning and the end. We're coming to the conclusion where this is, we can expect the writer to issue a challenge by way of application to those who read Revelation. What's interesting is he also puts a curse in here for anyone who messes with the text or uh, misapplies it. That's why uh, Martin Luther, uh, the uh, great reformer in the early 16th century, had his doubts about whether to put Revelation in the canon. It had this curse at the end, and so he didn't want to get in trouble, so he wasn't sure if he wanted to put it in the canon or not since it had that curse with it. Revelation 22.6 reads, And he said to me, he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. This is just a summary taking us back to the initial statements in chapter 1 that God had given the revelation first to Jesus Christ. It's the revelation given to him. He doesn't originate it. It's given to him, disclosed to him by the Father. And then it is mediated to John uh, through an angel. And that fits a pattern that we see throughout the uh, uh, Old Testament is that when God reveals himself, 
he doesn't just leave it up to us to try to figure out what it means uh, in terms of these prophecies and dreams and visions. But there is an interpretation that is given along with the dream. For example, in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapters uh, 2, Daniel, Daniel 2, you have Nebuchadnezzar has the dream, but then God sends, gives the interpretation to Daniel. Daniel 7, Daniel 8, the, Daniel has the dream or the vision, and then an interpreting angel comes and explains what everything means. So we don't go to those visions or those dreams and just guess at what the what, what the symbolic value is of the of the various animals or the various features of the dream. And the same thing is true for uh, for John: is that all of these images that are seen in Revelation are explained. If they're not explained in Revelation, then they're probably explained somewhere else, like in the Old Testament, where. The, that particular symbol originated, and so it's ex- uh, expected or understood that the person who's reading Revelation would have a knowledge of these Old Testament uh, precedents. So in verse 6 we read, And the he, that is this interpreting angel, now is going to uh, bring this to a conclusion, and he reminds John that these words, and that is the words of the revelation, the words that have been disclosed to John, these words are faithful and true. Now, this phrase, faithful and true, is a uh, an interesting phrase, and it is used in uh, two or three other places in Revelation. The most notable are in Revelation 21.5, which we uh, have recently seen, and Revelation 3.14. In Revelation 21.5, uh, we, we read that he who sat on the throne, that, and that would be God the Father, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he, that is God the Father, said to me, John, write, for these words are true and faithful. And then in Revelation 3.14, at the end of the letter to the church of, the, of Laodicea, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ addressed John, John and said, "These th- um, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. This is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have three key words there, Amen, faithful, and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. Now, when we look at these verses, the these two words, faithful and true, are important to understand, and especially if you go back to an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament context. Faithful and true are based on these two Hebrew words when you find them in the Old Testament. The first word, uh, or a form of it, the form that's found in some places is the Hebrew word amuna. The root is aman, the verb where we get our, our, our word amen. It, it's, uh, it originally was a, a Hebrew word, and it means to confirm something. It has the root idea of support, that which is stable, that which is dependable, that which is unshakable, that which you can put your faith in, that which you can depend upon, and that is how it comes to mean various things related to belief. It's a verb for belief or faith because we put our faith in something that is dependable, something that is faithful. So within this word group uh, that has the, the same word, you have the idea of dependability, faithfulness, uh, the verb faith, and also true because something is faithful, because something's dependable, it is true. So those are all uh, uh, aspects of the sa- uh, same basic word group. And yet when it comes over into Greek, it picks up different Greek words that don't express that same idea, but as I pointed out when we looked back here at uh, Revelation 3.14, that the Lord Jesus Christ is depicted by these three uh, adjectives, the uh, amen, which means the faithful one or the dependable one, uh, then he's defined further as the faithful and true witness. Now those are two, those two words, faithful and true, modify witness, indicating his uh, testimony to the grace of God, that grace and truth came through uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So describing the words that are given in the revelation of Scripture, these words are faithful 
and true. So they are dependable. They are unshakable. And this leads us into the whole doctrine of inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture. As we've been studying, and it's sort of a, uh, a companion study in Second Kings 18 on the reliability and the dependability and the trustworthiness of Scripture. Can we really trust in the Word of God? And we trust in the Word of God because the Bible did not have its source in man, but it has its source in God. And this is what is further developed in the next verse in Revelation 22.6, said in the next clause in 22.6, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, the God of the spirits of the prophets. What does that actually mean? This is the God who uh, oversees or is the one in control of the the spirits of the prophets. Now, what is that word, spirits of the prophets? What does spirits refer to? The, I pointed this out several times, and I've got some more detailed studies, especially in 1 Corinthians 3 on this. But the Greek word that is translated spirit, as well as the Hebrew word ruach that is translated spirit, pneuma for the Greek, ruach for the for the Hebrew, are words that have a huge range of meaning. They can refer to the wind. They can refer to uh, just the immaterial part of man, in which case it would be a synonym for the soul. They can refer to uh, a subpart of the, of the immaterial makeup of man, which we sometimes refer to as the human spirit, as a term that describes that uh, component of a human being uh, that was lost by Adam when Adam sinned, and entered into what we refer to theologically as spiritual death or separation from God, an inability to have fellowship or have union with God because of sin. And uh, sometimes we we look at words. This is one of the um, basic errors that people can make in dealing with languages when you're dealing with a uh, any any language is trying to make a word that is technical in one place technical in every place. And that particularly has caused problems in trying to understand uh, the basic components of the immaterial part of man. We talk about the soul and we talk about the spirit. Now, there's two passages in, in the scripture that are very clear about the, uh, the immaterial makeup of man and showing the distinctions between two aspects of man's, of man's uh, makeup. The first is in Hebrews 4.12, which talk, talks about the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit. See, dividing asunder the soul and the spirit. The word is going to make a distinction between the soul and the spirit. And then there's another passage in First Corinthians, First Thessalonians, five twenty-three, which talks about the fact that may your whole spirit soul, and body be preserved, blameless. Your whole spirit, soul, and body. So there you have the three components of of a human being, his body, soul, and spirit. And in those two passages, it's very clear that the Bible distinguishes at some level between the soul and the spirit. But then you get into other passages, and you look at the Passages back in uh, Genesis and Exodus talk about the spirit of the Pharaoh. Well, wait a minute. That's not talking about spirit in the same sense that that we just saw it in Hebrews 4.12, where it's something distinct from the soul. There, spirit is used as virtually a synonym for the soul uh, because Pharaoh was not a, a believer. He is spiritually dead. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 2.1 that we have all been born dead and our trespasses and sins. So what part of us is dead? We're physically alive, but there's some component of man's immaterial part that is spirit, that is, that is dead, that is non-functioning and as separated from God. And that's what we refer to as the human spirit. But every time you see the word spirit, you can't just automatically think that that means the Holy Spirit or the human spirit when it can refer to 
uh, wind or breath, or it can be a synonym for the immaterial part of man, including both soul and spirit. It can even be a synonym for soul. It can be a synonym for emotion. In a couple of passages, it can be a synonym for mind or thinking in some other passages. You have to look at the context, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the word pneuma is used in about six verses with four different meanings. And if you aren't careful at distinguishing what the nuances are in each one, then you can get fairly confused, and and that happens even in English. We have words that we use uh, in different ways in different senses, and yet when we're in conversation, just because we know the language and we're comfortable with it, we pick up on those on those distinctions. So here we're talking about that, that God on the one hand, and on the other hand you have the prophets, and it's the spirits of the prophets. If it was a singular spirit, then we would be talking about the spirit of God who is involved in the uh, communication and transmission of God's revelation through the prophets. But since it's a plural word, it's not talking about the singular Holy Spirit. It's talking about uh, the individual, something in the individual makeup of the, of these prophets. And here I believe that the best way to understand the, the meaning of the word spirits here isn't in the sense of the human spirit, but as just a synonym for their, uh, their immaterial makeup, probably focusing on their mentality because uh, God did, does not disengage the mentality of the prophet when he revealed his word to them. And we have some support for that in two different passages, or one, uh, two different passages, primarily one I'm just going to go to, is in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. The other passage, one familiar to you, is in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17, but that deals more with the uh, outbreathing of the word that all scripture is breathed out by God. So that indicates the source. In first, uh, second Peter 1, 20 and 21, we have another description of the mechanics of how God's word was revealed to the prophets. Peter says, knowing this, that this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, what he what he is talking about here is prophecy of scripture. So he he's writing uh, in the middle part of the first century. Peter is writing uh, probably about two thirds, more than half, less than two thirds of the New Testament has been written by the time he wrote Second Peter, and he is primarily has in mind the Old Testament canon. He's not thinking in terms of a New Testament canon because it hasn't been been put together yet. And, in fact, it's incomplete. He does know that Paul has written things that are clearly revealed by God and are uh, are inspired by God the Holy Spirit and are on the same level of authority as uh, Old Testament Scripture. He's, he's clear on that because in several places in Peter, he quotes, um, he quotes from Paul's writing and from... Uh, the Old Testament as equally authoritative. So he does have an understanding of, uh, of Paul's inspiration, but he doesn't have an understanding yet of uh, the canon. It's not complete yet. So he says, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture. So he's primarily speaking of the Old Testament, and he's speaking of the, of the, the aspects of the Old Testament that are written by the prophets. Now, most of the Old Testament was written by prophets, but not all of it. But prophecy has to do with the the uh, not just the future aspect of Scripture, not just foretelling the future, but also uh, understanding it in its rudimentary sense that the role of the prophet was as a representative of God. Uh, the prophet represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to God. In his role as a prophet representing God to the people, the role of the prophet was to challenge the people with their obedience or disobedience to God. This is the role we see of Nathan coming to David when he challenges him because of his disobedience to God in the uh, sin with Bathsheba. So knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, the prophecy of Scripture has to do with everything that the prophets are writing, not just the historical not just the challenge, but also the foretelling part. You can't separate the two. That it wasn't 
up to them. That's the context tells us what he means by uh, private interpretation. This isn't something that originated from the prophet. And that's the explanation of the next verse. For that word indicates that you're explaining what the statement you've just made. For prophecy never came by the will of man. This is not the prophet. You didn't have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, anybody sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to come up with a prophecy here. It was something that came to them from an external source, from the source of God, and it's described in this verse that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So you have the action of God the Holy Spirit, who is the supervisor of revelation in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's God the Holy Spirit who then is communicating what God wants communicated to the uh, soul of the prophet. And it goes through the soul of the prophet, and the prophet then writes down what God intended for him to write down. It's not a dictation theory. Some people get the idea that that um, uh, God dictated the Bible. There are sections in the Bible, clearly, that God dictates. For example, uh, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, things of that nature. But not everything is 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 dictated. We don't believe in a dictation theory of inspiration. Probably the best uh, definition of inspiration is the one I have on the board, taken uh, cobbled together through looking at various uh, different doctrinal or theological sources. The basic Greek word for inspiration is the word theopneustos. Thea, that first syllable or the first word, is the word for God. Neustos is the word for spirit or breath, and literally what it came, by, by breaking it down this way, it means God breathed. God is the one who is uh, breathing out something. It's not something that's generated by a man. Uh, the term inspiration, when it, we speak of Scripture, is something totally different from when we talk about human inspiration. We can speak of Shakespeare uh, being inspired when he wrote his plays or wrote poetry. We can think of some uh, artist who uh, was brilliant with his use of the brush and what he painted as being inspired. We can even talk about someone who gives a great, uh, great speech as being inspired. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about something that originates by, with God and is breathed out or exhaled through the individual. So the definition reads, God the Holy Spirit, because of the three members of the Trinity, it's the Spirit of God that moves men. God the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally, so there's something here that goes beyond our ability to fully comprehend and understand. Uh, Not that we can't understand the critical elements, but we can't understand it fully. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. Now, when I... Uh, first went to seminary, first semester had bibliology with Charles Ryrie, and the verb that Dr. Ryrie liked to use here was superintended. I think that's a good word, too. I think directed, though, communicates a little bit better to most people. But it's the idea that, that God the Holy Spirit is overseeing or superintending the process. It's not a mechanical process. It, it's not a process that overrides the individual's personality or education or background or things of that nature, but that God the Holy Spirit is governing it so that the, he can guarantee the end result. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waving, and then all of these different categories are important to understand, without waving their human intelligence... You know, Paul writes with his vocabulary. He writes in extremely long, complicated Greek sentences that uh, that are difficult to break down and understand. Even uh, Peter makes this comment later on in uh, in Second Peter, talking about Paul, who wrote many things that are difficult to understand. Uh, Paul writes in a highly elevated form of Greek. Um, then you have vocabulary. Paul is prone to coining words, combining words in new ways to give a specific theological nuance to some terms. Uh, Peter doesn't. John has a very simple vocabulary. That's why in, uh, whenever you are, are learning Greek, you, usually people are taught to read 
uh, Greek in J- the Gospel of John or one of the epistles of John because it's simple, simple Greek in terms of its vocabulary and grammatical structure. It's just difficult to understand. You really have to stop and think about what John is saying and what he means. Um, but his vocabulary is very different from Peter, very different from Paul. So that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, you get a sense of their their personalities and, and the way they write, uh, literary style, uh, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor. So that they have their 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 personalities, their individual backgrounds, their writing styles, their vocabulary, all those things are not lost. So that you can analyze Paul's writings, you can analyze Peter's in many different ways and see those characteristics. So the Holy Spirit doesn't replace the mentality of the writers, but he works through there's that communication uh through the uh, thinking through the spirit or the what we would say is soul, but it refers to the immaterial part of man. He's using all of that together to bring about um, his his revelation. So we go on to read in the definition that uh, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed human writers of Scripture with, that without o- overriding any of those factors, his complete and coherent message, that means it's sufficient, nothing got lost, uh, nothing got left out. There aren't any uh, other books of the Bible out there somewhere that we're going to discover and give us fresh new insights into the text. Uh, it's complete. It is a coherent message so that it makes sense. It's internally logical and consistent from Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament predicts the new. The new fulfills the old. You can't understand the new without the old. You can't understand the old without the new. His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages, in the original document, okay? In transmission, errors can creep in. Uh, if I were to dictate a, uh, if I were to stand up here and take something like the Declaration of Independence or Constitution and dictate that and all of you write it down, there would be mistakes. Some people would misspell words. Others would miss a word here or there and leave it out. Anybody who remembers, I don't know if they still do that in school or not. We used to do that. Um, when I was growing up, they would have those kind of dictation exercises in, in the classroom, and people leave out words. So errors would creep in. But if you lost the original, you could take 50 different copies and pretty much re- reconstruct what the original said even though some of those copies left out a word or misspelled words or transposed words, you could still reach a a good understanding of what the original was. That's the science of textual criticism. And it's not just used on the Bible. They use this with all the classic authors. Uh, Whenever you come up with uh, various manuscripts related to, and we don't have very many of these, but of Homer or of... uh, uh, of Caesar or of any of the uh, classical writers of either Latin or Greek uh, or uh, origination, or you also have in the study of a lot of uh, uh, the writers in the Middle Ages. I, mean, I was really amazed when I first went over to uh, uh, University of St. Thomas and started studying philosophy there and focusing on, on uh, Thomas Aquinas, and they have critical text editions of uh, Aquinas and uh, his writings of the Summa Theologica, just like we do the Bible, with all you know the variations down at the bottom and uh, that kind of thing. So textual criticism is not something that's unique to biblical studies. So there's a there's a whole science to that, being able to uh, reconstruct uh, what the original said, because in most cases. We don't have the originals of any of those others either. We don't have the original documents of Scripture. But if you start with an inerrant original and then you move uh, even five or six generations down with copies, it, you, can re- you can still reconstruct the original and it's inerrant. But if you start with a document that has errors, then no matter how far down you go, you still have errors. So starting with an inerrant document it doesn't mean you lose anything over time, in fact, as Dr. Ryrie used to say, the problem isn't, he'd, he'd say, men, back in those days there were no women, say, men, the problem isn't that we have 98% of Scripture, we have 102% of Scripture, and we have to figure out which 2% doesn't belong there. 
And that's a good way to think about it. We haven't lost anything. We just have some extra words and phrases here or there that got put in, and we're not sure if they should belong or not. Nothing changes any meaning or doctrine or affects anything like that. Uh, it's mostly, uh, mostly uh, very, very minor. Now, when you get into, we go on into our verse here, the Lord God uh, of the, of the uh, Spirit of the Holy Prophets, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. The things which must soon take place. Now, this is where we start getting into some of the uh, really important aspects of understanding these two verses. You have this word soon, which is the Greek word ingus. It's really spelled E, epsilon, gamma, gamma, upsilon, sigma. Uh, like here at the bottom, what must soon take place, uh, but it, uh, and then you have another word, quickly, that is a translation of the Greek word takus, which means quickly in a rapid rate, or sometimes it can mean soon. So it can indicate that once something starts, the progress is going to take place very rapidly. But it can also mean that it's going to happen very soon in close temporal proximity to the present. But it doesn't always mean it. You have to look at the context. So when Jesus says, I'm coming back quickly, he may not, he doesn't necessarily mean what we hear is you're going to come back. There's not a whole lot of time's going to elapse between now and the time you come back. But what Jesus can also mean by the use of takus is when I, when the process begins, when the dominoes start to collapse, they're going to collapse quickly. Once the we come to the end times and things begin to happen, they will all happen very rapidly. And that's what we see really in the book of Revelation. Once you get to the things to come, mentioned in Revelation 4.1, the things which will take place after these things, once you see that heavenly scene with the Lamb going before the Father, receiving the scroll, then opening the scroll, all of those events tr- take place and transpire in a very rapid manner over that period of seven years. That's the idea. Quickly doesn't mean that it had to have happened back in the first century. Now, there is a view of prophecy, and I've gone over this before, there's a view of prophecy that is called preterism. Preterism. Now, you have three words. That's, an, that's a, based on a Latin word, and it just basically means past. There's three ways in which uh, Christians have interpreted prophecy down through, down through the centuries. And if you think about it in terms of past, present, and future, you have it. Okay, past is preterism. Present is called historicism. And what that meant was that you could go to Matthew 24, Jesus' uh, 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 discourse on the Mount of Olives, or you could go to the section, the future section in Revelation 4 through 19, and you could sort of say, well, maybe we're between chapter 12 and chapter 13. And we, you could spot, you could, you could look at current events and figure out where you were because you, those, those future events were laid over the church age as sort of a blueprint. Now, we don't believe that. That was historicism. But, there's, but, but that dominated a lot of Christian thought up until the 19th century. In the 19th century, you had the recovery of the way the early church looked at these things as future, completely future to the church age, that the events of the tribulation, the millennium, uh, are all future, and they won't take place until after the end of the church age. And preterism pretty much died out at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, but then it's been resurrected by some in the last 20 or 30 years. And you get people like even uh, R.C. Sproul, who's on the radio here with his uh, uh, with his uh, uh, Ligonier Ministries. He's become what they call a partial preterist. And a partial preterist is someone who believes that Jesus returned, his, the second coming occurred spiritually, when he returned in judgment, that's, that's how they would interpret Jesus returning in the clouds, when he returned in judgment in 70 A.D. Uh, when uh, Israel was judged and the temple was destroyed. 
Now, that is really pushing the envelope in terms of interpretation. But what they do is they go to these ver- words like, like takus and ingus and say, see, Jesus said he'd come back soon. You know, not 2,000 years later, but soon, that very century. Well, when you understand what is being said here in, in, in Greek, that ingus is used <clears throat> in relation to takus. Takus controls the meaning. And takus indicates that it's, when it unfolds, it's going to unfold rapidly. That's really how it should, uh, should be understood. Those events are going to take place rapidly. And then that's, and the nearness then indicates the, uh, imminency that Jesus could come back at any time, uh, not necessarily in the, in the first, uh, century. So these have become very important. It's, it's, it's funny today. I had to talk with a pastor this last week. Uh, called me, and he had been, um, it seems like this is a, a story I hear far too frequently these days. He had been mentoring a young man for a couple of years uh, with a view towards uh, the, eventually this young man would go into the uh, go into the pastor and go into the pulpit ministry. And he got, this young guy got off onto some um, odd aberration of a doctrine, a view that came out that was developed in the late 80s by uh, Marv Rosenthal called the pre-wrath rapture uh, doctrine of the church. And when he got off into this pre-wrath rapture, what that means is that basically the rapture occurs not at the end of the tribulation, but 80% of the way through the tribulation, which means that the church goes through most of the tribulation. And and this pastor was, well, when when do I cut him loose? I mean, I, we've been We've read all the books, and he had read the key books on the subject. The pastor had, as well as the a young man, and the young man just was wasn't going to wasn't going to budge. And I have seen this again and again and again that the, one of the greatest dangers in the ministry is arrogance, and it's never more pronounced than it is in young students of the word, young men who think they have the, who believe they have the gift of pastor teacher, and they all of a sudden they've learned just enough to become dangerous. And then they think they know more than their pastor who's been in the word for 20, 30, or 40 years, and instead of listening to him anymore, you know, they're, they're off on their tangent, and, uh, they've got, uh, the, you know, taking the bit in the mouth, and they're running off completely out of control. And this is exactly what's happened in, in this situation, and I can think of just many, many others over the years. And that's one of the great dangers is because when a little bit of knowledge can be extremely dangerous because you think you know more uh, than you actually do. Um, I've gone through those kind of growing pains. That's why they call second-year students in any discipline sophomores, from two Greek words, sophos meaning wise and moros meaning fool, uh, they're wise fools, and you see, I see this again and again, um, and I saw it when I was in seminary, uh, guys that thought they knew a whole lot more than, than men who had been in the Word, in the text, who had double doctorates, but they had figured out some little secret clue to something, and off they went. And so it's a real test of humility, and if, you, if a young man who's going to go into the ministry can't make it past those that early stage without succumbing to that level of arrogance, then they, they'll never make it in the, in the ministry. Uh, one of the key elements that's needed for anyone who goes into the pastorate is humility. And uh, arrogance is a great, great danger because it's easy for pastors to believe all their press reports and think that they're uh, as good as everybody thinks they are, and they're just a servant of God like anybody else. Now, when we look at these words, they don't mean that the Lord was promising to come back in a very short amount of time, but that when he did come back, it would come back very rapidly. And the second word, ingus, just indicates that it would be, um, it would take place, uh, but he wasn't giving a specific time. Now, this fits within a pattern that we see uh, in the Old Testament, that... Um, at the end of Revelation 22.6, it says uh, that God sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. This language comes right out of the Old Testament. In Daniel 2.29, when Daniel's going to uh, interpret the uh, image, 
the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. He says that uh, he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. It's just a, a general term for the future. And, of course, we have the, uh, he's talking about interpreting the image uh, in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that traces out the history. Oops, went too far. I'm going to do it again. Uh, traces out the history from Babylon, the Media Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire, followed by the Roman Empire, and then in the future, the revived Roman Empire. Daniel 2.45 uh, rather used that same phrase, the things which will take place in the future. Uh, Jesus used this terminology in uh, talking about future things in Matthew 24, 2 through 6. Uh, he said to them, do, not, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. That's an example of a near fulfillment of a prophecy that occurred in, in uh, A.D. 70. Uh, Matthew 24, 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will all these things happen? Okay, that's future terminology. Uh, skip a couple of these other verses. Um, Revelation 4.1, after these things, John says, I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Revelation 22.6 then concludes by saying uh, that this was the purpose of this revelation to John and to, to that God was showing to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, this brings us to the whole doctrine of imminency, and the doctrine of imminency simply means that, and that's spelled with an I, I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-Y. It's another theological word to talk about imminent with an A, I-M-M-A. Imminency means that something is hanging over your head, and it can drop at any moment. It's, it could happen at any moment. It might not. But it could happen at any moment, and this has been a major doctrine in Christianity since the earliest days of the church, that nothing has to happen before Jesus comes back. He could come back today, tomorrow. He could have come back at the end of the first century, second century, third century. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled before Jesus returns. And we see this in uh, various statements from uh, early church fathers. For example, Clement of Rome, who was a pastor in Rome in the late 1st century, early 2nd century, said, Of a truth soon and suddenly shall his will be accomplished, as the Scripture also bears witness, saying, Speedily will he come. See, speedily. That's that takus idea. It's quickly when he comes. Speedily will he come and will not tarry. The Lord shall suddenly come to his temple, even the Holy One for whom you look. So there's this, this sense that it could happen at any moment. That's imminent. At any moment, nothing must come first. Ignatius, who was uh, uh, one of the church fathers who was arrested, taken to Rome, wrote se seven uh, short epistles to churches on his way to Rome where he was martyred, writes, The last times are upon us. Now, they didn't understand. He's off on that. There, there are last times for Israel, and there's last times for the church. The last days for the church basically covered the whole church age. The last times for Israel indicate Daniel's 70th week. So he says, The last times are, upon, are come upon us. Let us therefore be of a reverent spirit and fear the long-suffering of God that it tend not to our condemnation. For let us either stand in awe of the wrath to come or show regard for the grace which is at present displayed one of two things. See, he understands that, that the near proximity, that's what he means when he says the last times are come upon us. They're, they're close. Uh, Irenaeus, in his work against, his, against heresy, says, And therefore, when in the end the church shall suddenly be caught up from, from this, it is said there shall be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, uh, neither shall be. So there was a sense of the imminency of the, that, that Jesus could come at any moment. Now, that's a crucial doctrine to understand because if the next event, the next major event that we see in God's timetable is Jesus coming at the rapture, and then nothing, we don't look for anything else. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're not looking for the seven seal judgments. We're not looking for the trumpet judgments. We're not looking for any of those things. 
that Jesus is going to return for the church next. Now, if, if, if he's not going to return until this, after all these things have happened or three-quarters of the way through the rapture, then, then imminency would be a foolish thing to believe in. Why well, believe that Jesus could come at any moment when the seal judgments have to take place first? Why believe that Jesus could come at any moment if the trumpet judgments have to take place first? That doesn't make sense. So when they believed that Jesus could come at any moment, they did not believe that anything else had to transpire before Jesus would return uh, for the church. So this is the view that is referred to the imminency of the rapture. Jesus Christ will return in the air, in the clouds, for the church, and all Christians will be absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the dead in Christ uh, to be with him in the air. Uh, that's followed by seven years of tribulation on the earth, during which time we have, or actually preceding that, you have the judgment seat of Christ, uh, and then the marriage of the Lamb at the end of that period with the return of Christ to the earth and the thousand years uh, of the millennial kingdom. That's the prophetic panorama, which we see. So imminency means that Jesus Christ can return at any minute. The Oxford English Dictionary defines imminent as something that is hanging overhead, something that's constantly ready to befall or overtake one, something that's close at hand in its incident. It is uh, certain it will occur, but uncertain when it will occur. We have to always be ready. But it's not contingent on any other event, and no prophesied event necessarily, I would add that word, necessarily intervenes between the believer and the rapture. Second point on the doctrine of imminency, it's important to understand the pre-trib return of Jesus Christ at the rapture. The rapture is, wait a minute, I just lost the definition there. The rapture is, I'll just fill that out, let me back it up. Uh, The rapture is the return of Jesus Christ in the air for all church-age believers. Those who are dead in Christ will be caught up with him, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up uh, together with him in the clouds. Now, these are the three different rapture views. I alluded to them a minute ago. But the first view is the pre-trib rapture, and that is that the rapture occurs, Jesus will return suddenly in the clouds, and, and suddenly all believers in the church age are caught up to be with him in the air. Now, nothing precedes that. It could happen at any moment. But in the next view, you have the post-trib rapture view, which means that all believers go through the entire tribulation period. Well, that would mean that a lot of things have to happen before Jesus could come back, so it can't be imminent at all. And then we have the view I'll just use this chart. Let me get it back up there, that chart. Uh, This is a pre-trib chart, but the the pre-wrath view sees only the bold judgments as the wrath of God, and so the church goes up somewhere in here, somewhere about 80% of the way through uh, the tribulation. Okay, fourth point. The purpose of the doctrine of imminency is to keep each believer in a constant state of expectancy. We're to be ready. We're not to be uh, sitting around just getting distracted and whatever other things we might want to do, but we need to be ready, uh, looking, waiting, watching, uh, hoping for the return of Christ, that we might be ready and prepared and that we might not be ashamed at his coming, 1 John 2, 28. We have to be ready. This has to be a reality for us. Believers are challenged to look for the blessed hope. We're looking for the Savior. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for, we're to watch for the Savior. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 6 and Luke 12, 37. And we're to wait for the Savior. First Corinthians 1, 7 and First Thessalonians 1, 10. That's who we're looking for. We're not looking, we're looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. 
A key passage on this is in Luke chapter 12, uh, which talks about Jesus as the master who leaves uh, and gives gives various responsibilities out and then uh, comes comes back in sort of a surprise inspection. Uh, he says, be dressed in readiness, keep your lamps lit, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him uh, when he comes and knocks. Uh, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. The point is that those need to be ready and alert for when he returns because it's not going to be uh, announced ahead of time. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. In other words, if you know when Jesus is coming back, you're going to be ready. If he's not coming back for 2,000 years, why be ready now? But if he's going to come, might come back tomorrow, then I need to make sure I am prepared and ready that that is a present, uh, present reality. Luke 12:41. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their, their rations at the proper time? The point is, the person who's put in a position of responsibility and fulfills his responsibility without immediate oversight is someone who has matured and learned to handle responsibility, and then they're able to handle responsibility and leadership in the future kingdom. So this is what the Lord indicates in Luke 12, 43 and following. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat, his, beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know. That's the doctrine of imminency. And will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That is simply language indicating uh, judgment. Matthew 24, 36 uh, and following also indicates the same doctrine. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, uh, nor the Son, but the Father alone. That doesn't mean Jesus isn't omniscient. It just means that that is not part of his responsibility to communicate that information. He says, the, uh, and then he goes on to say, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. For in those days, therefore, the, uh, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark. So point number six, no prophecy then uh, must be fulfilled between the baptism of the Spirit and the rapture uh, means that the rapture is imminent. It, will, would, it could occur at any time. No one knows the day or the hour. Now, that doesn't mean that as you in, get to the end of the church age that some things happen that are either fulfillment of prophecy related to the next stage or begin to set the stage for the next, but they don't have anything to do with the timing of the rapture just because something such as uh, the beginning, the, the reestablishment of the state of Israel, uh, if they were to start rebuilding the temple, that doesn't mean that the rapture is any closer. It just means that things related to the next stage are starting to be established now, but it still doesn't mean it's any closer. That's where I think people still operate on this historicist view that, that's kind of left over uh, historically from our past. Uh, people like Hal Lindsey did this. You know, well, uh, the generation that sees these things, that's the generation that's going to uh, be the rapture generation. And he, I think he misunderstood the word generation there. It's not Ganeos there isn't generation. It is uh, that this, this race won't be destroyed. He's talking about the fact that Israel, the Jews, are not going to be destroyed no matter what happens uh, in the tribulation period. Um, but they're still trying to act, act like they can time it, and you can't time it. No matter what you see, you can't time it. It's unexpected. So no prophecy uh, necessarily is fulfilled between the baptism of the Spirit and the rapture. So in point seven, while the rapture is imminent, 
the second advent is not. Before the second advent occurs, there are many prophecies which must occur. For example, the rapture, the tribulation, the judgment seat of Christ, all the events in Revelation uh, 6 to 19. So that is imminency. Imminency means Jesus comes at any at any moment, and that's indicated by those two words, uh, ingus and um, for his being near and takus, meaning it, it unfolds quickly. This is what is stated then in verse 7. In verse 7, we have a quote from Jesus. You have three, actually, you can get confused here. There's three speakers. The angel is speaking in verse 6. Jesus speaks and is quoted in verse 7. And then John speaks in verse 8. The angel then begins to speak again in 9, uh, 10, and 11. Verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the sixth blessing statement in uh, Revelation. And again, it's simply, it's a parenthetical statement reminding John that Jesus said when he comes, he would come rapidly. And so it is important to read uh, read the words of the prophecy of this book. This reiterates a promise given in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, uh, talking about blessed is the one who uh, reads publicly the words of the prophecy and those who hear or heed the words of the prophecy of this book. Then verse 8 shifts to John, and we'll pick that up next time as we see the response of John uh, to the angel. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things, to be encouraged by the fact that our Lord's returning. Uh, He may come today. He may not come for another century, but we know that one day he will return, and then we will be taken to be uh, with him in heaven. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the uh, application of these doctrines in our own lives, that we might always be ready to give an account for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.